Okay, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We are going to go through two chapters tonight. We've got chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 is short, so don't worry, we'll be fine. Um, We really have a couple of transition chapters here. So in chapter 4, here's what we're going to see. The final king of Israel, the final king who's a descendant of Saul, is going to die. Because up until this time, as we're going through Samuel, remember that Saul, the previous king, died at the end of 1 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, we have this civil war in Israel. We have this tension. We've got David, who was anointed king, who God has promised will be king, who the the tribe of Judah has put over them as king. But then we have the rest of Israel that's holding on to the old regime, that's holding on to Saul, and they've set up one of his kids, this guy named Ishbosheth, as their king. And there's a tension here. And in chapter four, we're going to see the end of Ishbosheth. And then in chapter five, a huge turning point in first and second Samuel, we're going to see David finally anointed and accepted king of all Israel. It's a great little section. What we're going to see as we go through this is really a bunch of people who have a large amount of responsibility or are put in leadership roles. And we're going to see some people that do that well and some people that don't do that well. And I was thinking about that this week because each of us has responsibilities in our lives, whether it's jobs or kids or our marriage. We have these responsibilities, super important responsibilities, and and how we handle those responsibilities matters and has impact on everybody else around us. Or we're in leadership roles, whether you're the leader of a business or you're the leader of a family. If you have kids, you're in a leadership role. Sometimes in your friend group, you might have a leadership role. And and we're going to see here leaders, good leaders, it really really matters. Because as we go through this, especially in the first part, we're going to see someone who doesn't handle responsibility very well. And then we're going to see two guys who assume responsibility for something that they're not supposed to assume responsibility for. And then finally, thankfully, we're going to get to David. David who excels under pressure and handles responsibility well and becomes king of all Israel and the greatest leader in the history of God's people. But even as we look through this first chapter where he becomes king, there's a warning to us because we see a chink in David's armor. And so we'll get a warning. All right? So let's jump in. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Real quick flashback Abner was the general of Saul's army. Abner was really the guy who came along and he had the army behind him, but he didn't have a right to the throne, so he really propped this guy Ishbosheth up on the throne and said, hey, you'll be king and I'll support you with the army. And in the previous chapter, Abner dies. And so it says that Ishbosheth's courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Verse two, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Benah, 
And the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Baroth. For Baroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Barothites fled to Gitium and have been sojourners there to this day. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Then verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, so we've got, we've got Ishbosheth. Okay, the funky names. I had to listen, read this like four times because I'm like, where, who are all these pieces and where are they going? So we got Ishbosheth. He's king. He's Saul's son. He's scared. Okay, and then we've got these two other random dudes. We've got this guy named Bana and Rakab. They used to be raiders for Ishbosheth, and in a minute we're going to see how they play out in the story. And then we've got this one other guy. His name is Mephibosheth. Okay, it's, I think it's the Sheths that really threw me off. There's just too many Sheths. So Mephibosheth, we're not going to talk about him at all tonight. Because a few chapters later, there's an entire chapter about this guy, right? So this is just a little bit of foreshadowing. There's this guy named Mephibosheth. Okay? And I'm not going to talk about him because I can't even say his name. So verse 5, all right? Here's where it gets interesting. Now the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, Rechab and Banah, set out, and at about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his... Okay, I was... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Brief interlude here. I was at home like an hour ago getting ready for this, and I always try to read it out loud once before I go. So I'm reading through this, and I... I say that they stabbed him, and I see my five-year-old daughter go like this. And then I say, and then they cut off his, and I'm like, okay, we're not going to maybe read the rest of this out loud. <laughs> so, because it's, yeah, it's pretty gruesome. They put him to death and beheaded him. I didn't want to explain that. Um, then they took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. <clears throat> Yahweh has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Okay, long section, but we really are going to encounter two very important people, or three people, one guy and then two guys who are together. The first is Ishbosheth. I call Ishbosheth the cowardly king. He's the cowardly king. And what's so interesting here is this. It says that Ishbosheth's courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Because as the leader goes, so go the followers. As the leader goes, so go the followers. Who's following you? Who are you leading? Who's in your sphere of responsibility? Are we taking that super seriously? Are we being careful? Are we realizing the influence we have? I can look back at people that I've known throughout my life that I didn't necessarily know I was in a leadership role, and I'm like, man, that was maybe not the best. Maybe not the best. I didn't take it 
seriously. Ishbosheth is scared, and all of Israel was dismayed. But then the next time we see Ishbosheth, he's what? He's, a, he's asleep, right? It says that he was asleep, taking his noonday rest. And it's not such an issue that he's asleep, right? Because we got to rest sometimes. And it was a pretty common to take naps. But he didn't set up any guards, did he? He's unguarded. He has lost his courage, and so he's lost his will to keep pushing, and he's not guarding himself any longer. And I think as leaders, as parents, as people who look to us, and there's people who know you come to church, and what are you doing on Wednesday night? I'm going to church. Those people are watching you now. They're watching you. And it's so important that we keep our guard up. There's something that I tell every couple that I have in premarital counseling. It's actually something that I think Mark Scud said told me when I was in premarital counseling, what, 16, 17 years ago. So you go through Genesis chapter one and chapter two and everything's perfect and everything's beautiful and, and this marriage is set up and it's great and the, the man and woman are naked together and unashamed and then chapter three, the only third chapter in the Bible, verse one says this, and then the serpent. And then the serpent was more crafty than anyone else in the garden. And I think if we're gonna be leaders and people who handle the responsibility that God has put us in place, we have to be so, so careful and so guarded because we have a real enemy and he's sneaky, right? And he's gonna sneak in while we're asleep and when we're not paying attention and it's not gonna work out well for Ishbosheth. But the other thing that I look at here that I find interesting is this, okay? So on one hand, I look at Ishbosheth and I'm like, you're a cowardly king, you're not a good leader, I don't wanna be like that. But I also don't wanna follow people like that either, right? So I look at this and I think, okay, on one hand, what can I learn about myself as a leader? But on the other hand, what can I learn about the type of people I should be following? Do I have people in my life who, if their courage failed, I'll be dismayed? What type of people am I following? And I'm th I've been thinking about this in terms of churches, because I've been in church for a long time, and I've seen church leaders fall. And for some people, that's fine. It's hard, it's difficult, but they continue to walk, and they continue to, to follow after Jesus and pursue him even through that difficulty and that pain. And I see other people who have church issues or family issues or leadership and it just wrecks them, it just wrecks their faith because they didn't have ultimate faith in Jesus, right? If we put our faith in man, man will always fail us. Matt Heverly, if you put all your faith in Matt Heverly, he's gonna fail you someday. If you put all your faith in Edgewater Christian Fellowship, we're gonna fail you someday as leaders. We make mistakes, we make errors, we try not to, but we're going to. Ultimately, your faith needs to be in the rock, who is Jesus Christ and what he did. See, as you go through First and Second Samuel, there's always this thing that's happening where we're comparing whoever we're reading to back to David. Do you remember the verse that we read about David just a few weeks ago when David was in a tough spot? It said that he encouraged himself in the Lord. That David strengthened himself in the Lord. See, Ishbosheth's strength was in a man named Abner and the army. And when that man failed him, his courage failed him. We need to be people 
who strengthen ourselves in the Lord and only the Lord, that he is the bedrock. Now, it is important to have leadership and other people around us. It's important to be submitted to authority, but the bedrock, the foundation of our faith must always be Jesus because he's unshakable. He's unshakable. Everything else will fail us at some point. And it's something that I need to teach my kids too. I'll fail you. Dad, I'm going to fail you at some point. And so my goal is not for my kids to, to have my faith. My goal is for my kids to have their faith in Jesus, their house built on his rock, so that when I make a mistake, it doesn't shake their foundation. Make sense? It's so cool. It's so important. All right, so after we have this Ishbosheth, the cowardly king, then we see these two other guys. I call them the clueless killers. All right? Here's what we got. We've got Banah and Rechab. And in verse 2 and 3, we're told who they are. It says this. It says they were of Benjamin, for Baroth is also counted as part of Benjamin. The Barothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. So the Bible takes a little time out to tell you who these guys are, what their lineage is. So let me tell you where they come from. They are Barathites, and the first time we actually meet them would have been all the way back in Joshua chapter 9. Okay, so Joshua comes in the land of Israel, and he's conquering, and he's ruling, and he's, he's, he's knocking down the walls of Jericho, and no one can stand in his way. And there's, these, there's this group of people, these the Barathites, and they're like, this is not going to be good. Like, Joshua is going to crush us. So what they do is... They're like, okay, we need to make a treaty with Joshua, but he's not going to make a treaty with us, so we have to trick him. So they get old sandals and old clothes, and they get dried out old wineskins, and they get moldy bread, and they get tired looking donkeys, and then they come walking along into his camp, and they tell Joshua, hey, we're sojourners. We've come from a long ways off. We heard about your war. Will you make a treaty with us? And it says there in Joshua that the leaders of Israel said, how do we know you're from a long ways off? What if you're just over the next hill and you're trying to trick us? And they said, well, well, look at how moldy our bread is and, and how broken down our wineskins are. And then in Joshua 9, 14, it says this, the leaders of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. And it turns out that they were from the next city over. And when Israel goes and finds that, they're mad, but they made a promise. And so it says that the Barathites lived with the Israelites to that day. So these are those guys. They come from a family of tricksters. And while I don't believe in generational curses, I do believe in photocopies of photocopies of photocopies. That what I do, especially the things that I don't do well, are probably the things my kids are going to copy, right? Right, like my kids never randomly start spouting Bible verses after I'm reading Bible verses, but stub my toe one time and say something I'm not supposed to, right? That's the one they get. <laughs> we have to be really careful. They're photocopies of photo because look what these guys do. They do the same thing. They sneak inside. Oh, we're just here to get some wheat. Yeah, it's going to be totally fine. <laughs> Stabbed in stomach. They're tricksters. But then it says this. So they, they go in they kill this king, they take his head all the way to David, and then they say this. They say, Yahweh has avenged my lord the king 
this day on Saul and his offspring. And here's the really important thing that we have to get about these guys. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. These guys think they're carrying out God's plan, but they're really murderers. When I think of zeal without knowledge, I think of some of these people holding the signs, the abortion. I mean, that's zeal without knowledge, right? These horrible signs with these pictures and zeal without knowledge is dangerous because here's what I see as I read through and it's what I love about some of these Old Testament stories where you get these narratives because I see these distinctions. I see God's promises. God promised David that he would be king, right? That he would rule Israel. So when these guys say that, they were right. They understood God's promise, but they didn't have God's instructions and they didn't wait for God's timing, right? They have his promise, but not his instructions and not his timing. And I've done that in my life and I see it go so poorly. And that's Abraham and Sarah, right? They got the promise. What's the promise? You're gonna have tons and tons and tons of kids. They're a little impatient about the timing. It's been quite a while, God. I think we have a plan. Come here, Hagar. No, didn't work out so well, did it? God has promised us so many things. He's promised us so many things in his word, but we also have to listen to his instructions and we also have to be people who wait for his timing. Amen? They didn't. And in a second, we're gonna find out what happens to them. Okay, so we've got those guys. We've got our cowardly king. We've got our clueless killers. Now finally we get to David, the righteous ruler, verse nine. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barathite. As Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. I don't remember this story in Sunday school. Right? Like, I remember David who killed Goliath. I remember David who wrote Psalms. I don't remember David who, like, cut people's heads off and cut people's hands off and then hung their bodies by a pool. David was a brutal dude, but it was what was needed for that time. And he's righteous here. See, one of the principles and things that I've been thinking about as I think about a leader and as someone who's supposed to have responsibility is this. The best time to do the right thing, the easiest time to do the right thing is the first time. And it gets harder and harder and harder after that. So here's what I mean. So we've been following the life of David. And if you'll remember, quite a while ago, Saul's trying to kill David, right? And he's chasing David all around the desert. And then there's one time where David's hiding in a cave and he's depressed and he's sad. And then all of a sudden, Saul comes in and is 
using the cave as an outhouse, remember? And so David sneaks up and cuts off the edge of Saul's robe. And afterwards, what does it say? It says, the guys come up to David and they're like, David, why didn't you kill Saul? And he says, should I be the one who lays my hand on God's anointed? Far be it from me to lay my hand on God's anointed. What's David saying? I know the promise, but this doesn't seem like God's plan and this isn't God's timing. Far be it from me. And then two chapters later, he gets another opportunity. He goes down and Saul's asleep and they steal his spear and they steal his water. And once again, David, why didn't you kill Saul? Far be it from me. And I know this because I've experienced this in my own life. I guarantee you it was easier to make that decision the second time because he's already decided to do the right thing the first time. And then you go a few more chapters, right? And this guy comes to David. That's what they're talking about here. And he's like, David, 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 you're going to be so excited. Saul's dead. And David's like, how do you know Saul's dead? He's like, because I killed him. Expecting a reward. And David says, far be it from you to lay your hand on God's anointed. I don't think that was a hard decision for David to make, was it? Because he'd already made the right decision twice. Hey, if I can't lay my hand on God's anointed, you can't lay your hand on God's anointed. These guys are clueless because they show up again with the same idea. David, 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 we got the head of Ishbosheth. I don't even think David had to think about it this time. I know what to do with you guys. <laughs> this is what we do in this situation. <laughs> Off with your head. And then for good measure, your hands too. Because um, why not? The easiest time to do the right thing is the first time. If we've already been walking in a way where we have been not choosing to do the right thing, then after we do, every time after that, it does get easier. Doesn't it? It gets easier. It gets easier and easier and easier to choose to do the right thing, right? The first time you have that, you own a business and you start your business and someone pays you in a big wad of cash and you decide to claim it and pay taxes. Ugh. It gets easier the next time and the next time. And a couple years later, someone hands you a wad of cash. You're like, I give it to the bookkeeper. I know what to do with that. It gets easier and easier. When you're away on that business trip and you decide to not sin, the next time it's easier and the next time it's easier and the next time it's easier. And I just love that about David as a leader. He chooses to do the right thing and then consistently follows through with it. And I pray that I would be someone like that. Choosing to do the right thing because it just gets easier and easier and easier. Self-control is a muscle. Self-control is a muscle that must be exercised or it atrophies. And just like any exercise, the first couple times going to the gym are hard and you don't want to go. And then eventually it gets better and better and better and you're not as sore the next time and you get stronger and stronger. Man, self-control is a muscle. And there's a lot of ways to exercise it. I think one of the things the Bible lays out for us beyond any others is fasting. You wanna exercise your muscle of self-control? Try fasting and praying. But I'm trying to stop this sin over here. Well, what's interesting to me is if you go through a day and you fast and you pray to the Lord and you've exercised that muscle of self-control, because I've seen this in my own life, the next time that sin, that propensity you have props up, you're like, wait a minute. I don't have to do that. I went an entire day without eating. I was hungry. I had a job right next to In-N-Out. It was torture. 
And you have this muscle of self-control that gets exercised and it just gets easier and easier and easier and I see that in David. And so now we have this righteous king as we come into chapter five and he's gonna go to his coronation and it's so cool. Here it says in verse one, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel And Yahweh said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. David is finally coronated as king of all Israel. And what the elders of the tribes of Israel say about David here is really interesting. They give three qualifications for his role as their leader. And as we're looking for leaders in our own life and looking for people to follow, or if we're wanting to be leaders, these three qualifications are so huge. Here's the first thing they say to David in verse one. They said, we are your bone and flesh. We are the same people. We are of the same covenant. You're an Israelite in covenant to God. I'm an Israelite in covenant to God. If I want to find a leader to follow, they better be a believer. I don't know why we ever take advice from non-believers. And I know that seems really like a strong statement because I was thinking about it today. I'm like, well, there's a lot of brilliant people out there. Like if you wanted to start a business, maybe Elon Musk would be the guy you'd want to talk to. I don't think he's a believer. I also don't think he's on his first marriage or his second. And I don't know that he's that happy. Because the things that we look up to and esteem and value are so different than what God looks up to and esteems and values. So if we're going to find someone to follow and be our leader, they better have the same values as our father. They better have the same values as we do. You say, David, you're bone of our bone, you're flesh of our flesh. You're, you're a believer like us. If we're going to be leaders, we need to be believers. If we're going to follow leaders, they better be believers. And then he says this, he says, in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. A leader must demonstrate the capability to lead, right? Just because you say you're a leader, if no one's following you, you're not a leader, right? Or in modern terms with wonderful um, social media, just because you say you have a lot of followers doesn't mean you should be a leader, A leader is someone who demonstrates the capability to lead. What have you done? One of the best advices that I got about parenting was this. Find people, like I was asking someone parenting advice, and they're like, well, let me give you advice about the type of people to find advice from. And I'm like, well, that's that's a head scratcher. What do you mean? He's like, listen, find people whose kids you like and ask them about being a parent. Because don't find people who you like them because sometimes you don't necessarily like their kids. Find people whose kids you're like, wow, I like being around that kid. Then you go to those parents. What did you do? 
How did you do that? Because they've done something. They've walked it out. You want to get advice about your marriage? Find someone who's been married for 30, 40, 50 years and walked it out faithfully. Not your girlfriends or your guy friends at work. That's, that's not the best place of advice to get. Who, who, what have you done? What have you done? Why should I follow you? Because it's such an important thing. And that's what they say about David. Hey, David, like, you've led the army. You killed Goliath. You've fought in battles and God has been with you. Yeah, we'll follow you. We'll follow you. And then he finally says this, He says, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. A leader, especially a spiritual leader, must have an evident call from God. Has God called them into this position of leadership? Has God called them to be a spiritual leader in your life? If so, that's a good person to follow. Not a good person to put your foundation on. That's Jesus and Jesus alone, but that's a good person to follow. Like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Yeah, I'll follow you. You are a believer. You have the same priorities. You've done something in your life that I want to emulate. You, you've walked this thing out. You're a fruit tree. You're bearing good fruit. And you seem to have a call on your life from the Lord. And the way you know that someone has a call on their life from the Lord is you ask them. You ask them about the work that they do and, hey, man, what's it like to be a pastor? What's it like to be a teacher? What's it like to be a business owner? And if they give you all this advice and they don't mention the Lord once or how he's helped them or how he's assisted them, be careful. Because what do you see about David? Every time that David wins a battle, he's like, man, the Lord went out before me. The Lord won this battle. David's constantly pointing the glory away from himself and back to God. You want to know someone who has a call on their life to be a leader, when you ask them about their accomplishments, they're gonna be someone who points back to the Lord and says, without him, I couldn't have done it. I never would have done it. It wouldn't have happened. That's someone with a call in their life from the Lord. That's David. And so they anoint him king. And the thing that I love here, just as a side note before we move on, is that David just goes with it. He's like, awesome, thank you, I'm now king. That's not how I would have handled the situation. Okay? Because they come to you and they're like, we know that God's put an evident call on your life. And you're like, really? Did you know it seven years ago? Because that's how long you had Ishbosheth in charge. But David doesn't do that, does he? David knows how to, what, bury the hatchet or, you know, just not rub your nose in it. it. There's a great phrase that I love. It's from Jordan Peterson. He's talking about parenting, actually. And he says this He says, there's no grudge in victory. And he's talking about like trying to get your kids to do something and you just fight with them and fight with them and fight with them and fight with them and fight with them. And then they finally do it. And he says, you just reward them. Oh, awesome. Thank you. I'm so glad you did it because there's no grudge in victory. But how often do we do this? We get in an argument with our spouse or at work and we finally, maybe we're actually proven right for once. And then we just got to rub their nose. See, do you remember? Do you remember when I was right? Six months ago? <laughs> Two years ago? David doesn't do that. David just says, all right, that's the past, man. You want to go forward? We want to walk this thing out together? Great. We can let the past be the past, and we can move on. And we can do this as believers because whatever they did in the past, Jesus already paid for it. It's really easy to let the past be the past when you understand grace. I would like my past to be my past. Please, 
So can I let other people have their past be their past? It's only fair. It's what God does. And so now David, as king, and it's cool because verse six says this, and the king, this is the first time this phrase is used for David. It's just a great little transition. It says this, the king's headed out on his first campaign. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater for Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, was with him. David needs himself a capital city, and he looks around and he sees Jerusalem, the city on a hill. And it's located in a prime location because remember, David's from the tribe of Judah, but Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin, and Jerusalem is right there in between it. But it says here that Jerusalem was inhabited by Jebusites. It's in the middle of Israel. Why in the world is Jerusalem inhabited by Jebusites? Because if you go all the way back to the beginning of Judges, Judges chapter one, here's what it says. It says the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Good job, sons of Judah, Judges 1.8. That's what you're supposed to do. But then Judges 1.21 said this, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That was 400 years ago, and David still has to deal with it. What am I leaving undone for the generations after me? What am I leaving undone? What territory has God called me to take in my home, in my town, in my personal life that I am leaving undone and then future generations are gonna have to deal with it? What's left undone? But then if you wanna flip it to the positive side, what I love is this. David, leaders do things others are unwilling to do. This city's been unconquered for 400 years because it's hard. The guys in this city are like, no one can conquer us. We don't even need an army. The lame and the blind can keep you out, David. This city has walls. It's on a hill. You'll never get in here. You'll never get in here. But David, true leaders do the things that others are unwilling to do. And David takes the city. It's actually interesting. The way he takes the city is kind of explained in Chronicles, his, the leader of his army actually goes up the water shaft and into Jerusalem and opens the door and David comes into the city and he conquers it and he makes it his city, the city of David. In verse 11, and Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. And David took, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron 
and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to David in Jerusalem. Shamu, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishu, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elida, and Eliphet. Eliphalet, which is my favorite in that list. You can call him Eli, but Eliphalet is a great name. Here we get this little glimpse. There's a chink in David's armor. Let's just be honest. David has a problem with women, right? David lets his libido ruin him eventually. He's got a problem. And it's interesting, I read this quote that David often handles trials better than success. And sometimes I see that in my own life and in people around me that I've witnessed. It's, it's easy sometimes to just stay focused on the Lord when things are tough and it's all you can do. But David here, he's getting comfortable. He's got a house built for himself and he lets it slip a little bit. And this is going to come back and haunt him. We all have certain sins that we have propensities towards. All sins are dangerous, but each of us individually, we know what it is. There's that one thing that it's like, if I'm gonna stumble, it's probably right there. Be careful of those in times of success. That's when they're so easy to sneak in. Oh man, I've been doing so good. Maybe I deserve this. Now oh, I'm a little tired, man. This will just, it's, it's so dangerous. And that's why it's put in right here because we see, David, you're killing it. But that's gonna kill you because you don't keep it in check. Verse 17, and when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. And David, key to David's life, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. David, pointing and giving glory back to God. Therefore, the name of that place is called Ba'er Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. David has camped. Uh, He's captured Jerusalem. He set up his stronghold. The Philistines are like, do we got to go get this guy? They come in. They camp at the Valley of Rephraim. David inquires of the Lord. God says, go out and have victory. And David has a massive victory. It says here at the end that the Philistines left their idols there and David and his men carried them away. If you run away without your gods, you get a butt whooping. That's what happened, right? Because those things are covered in gold and jewels. And they're like, we don't even have time to grab them. They just flee. David has a great victory. But this is the thing about this story that's so interesting to me because listen to the next couple verses and tell me if you've heard them before. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the armies of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him. Okay, same exact scenario. The Philistines come up, 
They camp at Rephraim. David inquires of the Lord, shall I go out? God says, go out. David goes out, has a great victory. The Philistines come up. They camp at Rephraim. And David inquires of the Lord again. I think that's so important and so key because so often I think that I get God figured out sometimes. Oh, I know what to do in this scenario. I know what to do in this situation. This is what we did last time. This is what we do again this time. But see, this time God has this entirely different plan. There is no formula to this walk with the Lord. It is only relationship. And it is only through inquiring of the Lord that we receive guidance. See, this interesting thing happened to me years ago. I was, um, I was at this time in my life where I was trying to decide... I had already made a decision that I didn't want to do full-time ministry. I wanted to do this. We're all in full-time ministry, but I didn't want to work at church. I wanted to keep my job and then do this because I love this and, and be able to do this alongside and continue to do ministry because I don't work here. I, in fact, I worked all day and then I get, to come, I get to come here and do this, right? And I can't get fired, right? Or I could probably get fired. I just, no one can cut my pay. So it's great. It means I can say what I want. Um, but there was, so I'd made that decision, and then there was like, there was kind of a, an opening here at the church. There was a pastor who was leaving, and some people asked, and they're like, oh, are you interested? And I was like, no, no, I'm, that's, that's not what I want to do. And then the next day, I was reading my Bible, and I just got this sinking pit in my gut, like, oh, man, that was the wrong call. And I was like, really? I thought I'd made that decision. No, that's, I mean, oh, just that weightiness. Have you felt that? I'm like, uh-oh. So I start reading and I'm struggling a couple weeks and I'm talking to people and I'm trying to get advice and I'm trying to get counsel and I do some fasting and I start reading and I finally come to the conclusion that no, I'm not, that job's not for me. After praying and I felt like the Lord said, no, the job's not for you. And so like, it's the next day or something and I'm, I'm just out for a walk and I'm thinking about it. I'm like, Lord, like what in the world was that all about? Like, <laughs> What was that all about? And it's one of the few times in my life where I really felt like God just mm, spoke to me, not audibly, but just such a clear thought that was so not me and came out of nowhere. And he just said, James, you don't get to make decisions like that without talking to me. Oh, it was about the process. It was about the inquiring. I thought I had it figured out. I thought I didn't have to ask you this time. I thought we already settled that. Nope because this time the plan might be different. James, you don't get to make decisions like that without talking to me, said my father. And it's stuck with me ever since. It's been so huge, just as it is here with David. Because what does God say? No, no, don't go up that way this time. I want you to do this. I want you to sneak around back. And I want you to wait till you hear this sound in the trees. And I'm going to go out before you. And then you're going to have a great Victory and exactly opposite of what we saw in the first chapter. What do we see David do here? He knows the promise God will defeat his enemies, but he waits and asks, Okay, God, but what's the plan? What's your plan here? What are your instructions? I know the promise. What are your instructions? And God gives him his instructions, and then David waits for God's timing. Hey, wait, wait till you hear that in the trees. And then David goes out and has a great victory. And it says in verse 25, and David did as Yahweh commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. When I look at David's life, 
as a leader, as someone I want to emulate or follow, the two things that stand out is he inquires and he obeys. And then he inquires and then he obeys. And then the next time, even though it looks exactly the same, he inquires and obeys. And if I could say one thing that we should take away tonight, that's it. As we walk this thing out, this life that God has given us, this partnership with him here on earth, where we take the responsibilities that he's placed in front of us, where we take the leadership roles he may have placed in front of us, we need to be people who inquire and obey. We inquire here, we inquire through prayer, we inquire through fast, and we don't make decisions without talking to him first. And then once we've received instructions and timing, we're people of obedience, amen? So I thank you for David. What a great chapter to look at his coronation and as he comes up and I pray that we would be people like him who inquire and obey and follow the path that you've set for us, Lord. That we would be people like David who partner. David doesn't just inquire and sit. He partners with you. He goes out. He fights in the battle. That we would be fighters, that we would take back territory, that we would not leave Jerusalems in our lives for our descendants to deal with, but that we would be action, but that we would be inquiry, and there would be patience. So I thank you for this life that you've decided to partner with us. May we follow you in all our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.